Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Well, welcome to a special episode of the Protect and Serve podcast. As you know by now, my name is Oliver Lawrence and I'm your host. And today is a momentous occasion for me. I'm celebrating the podcast's first birthday and what an incredible journey it has been. Over the past 12 months, I've had the honour of hosting some remarkable guests and engaging in insightful conversations about the world of law enforcement, public service and community engagement. Before I dive into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude. To my listeners, thank you for tuning in, sharing your feedback and being part of this community. Your support and enthusiasm have been the driving force behind my success. And to my esteemed guests, who have generously shared their time, expertise and stories, I can't thank you enough. Each episode has been a learning experience for me and an opportunity to gain valuable insights into the challenges and triumphs of those who have dedicated their lives to protecting and serving our communities, not only here in the UK, but right across the globe. From Nepal to Australia, New Zealand, the US, Northern Ireland and Scotland, the stories have truly been inspirational. Today, though, I'm dedicating this episode to you, our listeners, and to my incredible guests. Without your contributions, the Protect and Serve podcast wouldn't be what it is today. Let's take a walk down memory lane and highlight some of the memorable moments from the past year that's been. They're hiding places to pounce and miss him. Then seeming hesitation about what to do next. Um. Of course, the senior bosses couldn't hear this, so they were shouting in our earpieces, go back, go back, go back. The, just, the sergeant on the balcony made the very brave decision to just ignore the senior officer's commands because he could hear what was going on inside. Now, when, that, when they got to the door, me and my colleagues were completely oblivious of this, and we just all of a sudden we hear a load shouting on the balcony. So me and my mate come out, and we see them around the door, and we see that the mate of mine, Clive, got a stun grenade in his hand. Um, he had a stun grenade at his end of the balcony. I had a stun grenade at mine. So I've got, got my revolver out. I've got my thumb through the stun grenade, the ring of the stun grenade, and I'm looking at him and I'm going, I'm thinking, I haven't a clue what's going on here, mate. If you're going to chuck that grenade, chuck it, and then I'll chuck mine. But I'm not, And he's looking at me as if to say, well, throw your grenade. Uh, eventually he threw his and I threw mine. I mean, it was probably literally seconds, but it seemed everything, as you probably know, in a, in a situation like that, everything sort of slows down. There is a history of uh, a couple of my uncles are in the Indian Army, so there's a real history of Sikhs joining the armed services. 
I think the real one was, uh, I think I was psychologically damaged as a child because um, back in the sort of the early 70s, um, Doctor Who's, one of his first assistants was Roy Castle, who I, I believe was a police officer. So I'm sitting there watching Doctor Who on a black and white TV, sitting in a police officer's uniform that my mum had made, um, just incredibly drawn into everything that Roy Castle was doing. And um, so fast forward 22 years and my mum says to me, how come you want to join the police? You've been to university, you've got a degree. And I said, well, I watched Zed Cars, I watched Doctor Who, I had my own police officer's uniform, I think it's your fault, mum. So I think there's like a mixture of things, but but in my heart, public service, it's, it's always been what gets me out of bed, always. We we talk about, um, you know, finishing up careers and, and moving on. Was it, were, were you ready in 2018 to move away from policing? Because it's not often a conversation we have about the departure and what those feelings are, the emotions behind, you know, we talked about it off air, almost sort of losing a relative because it's something that is very much in our DNA. It runs through our blood, you know. What was that departure mm. like in 2018 for you? Very traumatic. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, my wife will tell you that I was pretty grumpy for at least six to 12 months. Um, I missed it every day. Uh, I dreamt about the job and things I've dealt with or, or complete things I've never dealt with that just came into my head in my dreams for probably a year. Um, and it was akin to a bereavement, I think, for me. Um, and I'm now, I'm now doing work with the with NARPO, uh, National Association of Retired Police Officers, locally in Berkshire, um, where I, I talk to officers that are about to finish um, one day I'm out the back of a police station posing for photos with the, the lone wolf emblem from their clubhouse you know how proud are we that we've just shut this, this gang down and four weeks later I'm having, having some sort of catastrophic mental breakdown in my house in front of my wife just bawling my eyes out unable to get myself back on my feet and so I didn't really um, I didn't really recognise that I had a problem it, it just hit me it, it hit me really hard and, and I completely broke down and that's why I went and saw a psychologist for the first time. And then I was, um, I was, I was approached by one of my best mates who was, a, he was a detective senior sergeant and he eventually taught me into going to the doctor and, and getting some time off, which I did. And I never stepped foot in a police station again. I was just so busted and so broken, I couldn't go back. So it was a quick, pretty quick process. I was only nine months from the time of finishing that bikey job to um, actually being medically retired. And I wanted to touch on a period in New Zealand's history which is probably one of the most tragic events of the last decade and I think lends itself in terms of the view of terrorism and often we we wrongly label one particular cohort as being potentially responsible for terrorist incidents where if you look historically at the moment one of the significant growing trends or concerns is, is far-right terrorism and I suppose I'm obviously talking about the tragic incident on the 15th of March 2019 when 51 people lost their lives in the Christchurch mosque shootings. It was a massacre that changed a country. This uh, is and will be one of New Zealand's darkest days. Brenton Tarrant opened fire at two mosques in Christchurch killing 51 people. It's just an animal. This guy's an animal. The attack was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in New Zealand's history. How do you plead? Guilty. But who is this extremist? 
and what happened in those 19 minutes of terror. The Greater Manchester uh, Fleet Chief Constable's role is an extremely important one, not only at local level but also at the regional and national level. The, interview, uh, the panel members were unanimous in their decision and it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the gentleman who will lead the force into a new era of policing, Peter Fye. Thank you, Chairman. Um, can I say what a tremendous honour it is uh, to have been appointed <coughs> as the new Chief Constable of Greater Manchester? This is one of the top jobs in policing. There is an enormous challenge out there. This is a very exciting uh, city region uh, in terms of its, uh, what it's achieving and its potential for the future. And I think policing and Greater Manchester Police can play a really important part um, in the continued development of Greater Manchester and of course very, very importantly, continuing with the reduction in crime, continuing with the success uh, in dealing with serious and organised crime and counter-terrorism, uh, but very importantly as well, improving the day-to-day -day service uh, to the good people of Greater Manchester. What was that process like in throwing your hat into the ring for the, for the top job, the second largest force in the country, as you say, I think a budget of 600 million, incredible responsibility. Um, were you ready? Yeah, I think it was ready. Well, I think it was, yeah, I think it was ready. Um, although, you know, big policing is very, very challenging. It is very different. The unsung heroes behind every successful police officer, be they male or female, is the family dynamic and the family support that sits behind them to allow them to do the job they do to the best of their ability. It's the wives, the husbands, it's the sons, the daughters, it's the brothers, it's the family, you know, because it is a job and a vocation that life kind of almost lives around because of the shift work, because of the demands, because of the on-call, because of the football matches, because of the antisocial behaviour happening elsewhere that we're called upon to help with. It is a very demanding role. And I imagine that your family is no different in terms of the support they've provided you over the last 28 years and three months. Would I be right? Sporting, yeah. So I've always been a cop for my wife. I met my wife in 2000. Um, and my kids have always known me as a police officer and um, they've always been great. Um, my mum and dad as well, um, fantastic, all the way through, my sister, yeah, so um, they've always been there for me and uh, hopefully, although they weren't from home but I, I think my wife would prefer, <laughs> prefer the elements of that, <laughs> maybe went away, maybe, but no, I, I've been very lucky in that regard, you know, very, very lucky with the support that I've had and that they listen to my stories. And that is the important part, and we're incredibly honoured to have listened to your story uh, this afternoon. So, listen, on behalf of myself and, and everybody that listens to this podcast, thank you ever so much for your 28 years and three months of service. Thank you ever so much for the work you've put in right across Police Scotland in terms of uh, the sacrifices that you've made to make, hopefully, lives of many, many people slightly better in terms of them looking back on memories and knowing that you've made a choice. So, and thank you ever so much for sharing your story on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Ollie. It was an absolute pleasure. There are a number of people, but from personal experiences, the next guest actually I met when I was a very, very young man as a teenager at Gypsy Hill as a police cadet. And there are a number of people that inspire you to join policing. My next guest was one that who inspired me that potentially one day I could be the borough commander of Lambeth. My career and my life took me into a different direction into Australian policing. But I must admit, I'm absolutely honoured to have him on the show to talk about his career. Simon Foy, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Ollie. Nice to speak. Simon, we, like every episode, we like to start at the beginning of one's career. And 
ask the question why policing yeah that's a that's a million dollar question really in some ways i mean i i i was sort of destined to be going into i, I did a law degree at university and i hadn't really thought much about what i wanted to do beyond that i realized quite quickly i didn't want to be a lawyer um and i think the moment for me and i thank you for your very kind and flattering words about um somebody inspiring you but but when i was at school in the sixth form um in wales a uh, a member of the local drug squad came along and just gave us a talk and i remember thinking at the time, god that sounds really interesting and although it didn't register much at the time it must have lain dormant so as i switched away from thinking i'm not going to be a lawyer somehow the the police just drifted into my head can we talk about the um a couple of these big incidents that you've been part of and the first one i wanted to cover off on was the tsunami in thailand in 2004 uh, in the crisis center local police liaison flo coordination for dna identification and you're the point of contact for non-police agencies tell us about that event for some of our listeners that aren't police related or aren't aware of it and your role in what was a horrific natural disaster yeah so I um, I've moved off um, the murder the murder uh, homicide command by that time, um, and I'd gone to witness protection, which is a covert role. And so uh, I wasn't allowed to sort of FLO. Um, uh, uh, sort of, I wasn't allowed to. I wasn't allowed. Uh, front facing wasn't uh, wasn't really something that I should be doing because I was in this co- covert role. But because I'd done, I was like a cadre of. Uh, I wasn't the first FLO, but I was amongst the first. You know, I was maybe a year or two after the program started. I was, I was there, and they, they, they'd set up this family liaison advisory team, and I'd done a few jobs, uh, particularly one big job in um, in Ealing, um, and so I worked with the family liaison advisory team. Um, but then I disappeared after the tsunami, and I was never going to be an FLO again, as far as I was concerned, because I was in the, in, in witness protection. But. Um, Along comes the tsunami, uh, and I remember getting a telephone call at home uh, on Boxing Day um, by a guy called Andy Grant, I think, who was in the family liaison advisory team that I knew knew quite well. And he said, "Miles, we've got this job on. Um, we need your. We need. We need coordinators down here. Can you come out?" And the coordinator role hadn't really started properly, um, and this. This tsunami is the first time that um, that uh, a coordinator and whether the, the, the police, the Met Police in particular, had really responded, or the British policing had responded in such a way to a mass casualty uh, disaster abroad, because it was one of the, the biggest in, uh, ever. You know, two hundred fifty thousand people lost their lives, hundred thousand people in, uh, lost their lives in seconds in on the, on in, in uh, Bandar in, in in Indonesia when the wave hits there. You moved to the district support unit um, where there was a high level of fitness and discipline and training. Tell us about the district support unit, what that unit was all about, what it was established for, and you know what led you into that transition. Well, again, it's networking, I suppose, isn't it? like a lot of things. I was, I played a lot of football for the for the Nick, and I was playing a lot of uh, rugby for C District. And, and, and those kind of people just went to the DSU and they asked me, my friends asked me, why don't you join the DSU? Um, and, I, and I was kind of asked to join by the sergeant. Uh, it was a natural progression for me because I'd, um, yeah, I've just been out, I'd just outside my probation, I think. 
I, I joined the DSU. And it was just, it was like a uh, crime fighting unit, a mobile crime fighting unit. And you, you, you went off your borough um, to lots of different incidents, and which really appealed to me, uh, stretching myself out there. And you, you trained for two hours a day and you trained hard, physically. And we had a, we had a sergeant who was obsessed. Um, um, so yeah, it was a natural progression for the people I have my, my, my group of friends who I played rugby and football with just naturally progressed to either CID or um, the district sport unit and a two and a half year service or whatever I had. Um, yeah, it was an opportunity that I, I couldn't wait to take, yeah. We often forget that there is still a very human element to the British Royal family that, you know, they laugh, they cry, you know, they go through the same family issues that we all gone. You know, there's there was nothing more confronting, nothing more remind me of that more than watching during Her Majesty the Queen's funeral, uh, the emotion on the family's faces, it, you know, the grief. You know, they still still go through the same emotions that we all do. I think sometimes we forget that. After the Piper's lament, the first verse of God Save the King. King's emotion on show in a way the Queen's never was. The period of mourning drawing to a close, and with it, an era. And, and you would be present during some of those particular moments when they laugh and when they cry. And you know, ultimately, are there any times where you've had a chuckle with, you know, I know we recall the story that you had with the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, we where too many candles were lit, which made a room too warm. Tell us these types of stories, which remind you that these are normal. This is a normal, you know, normalish family. It, it is, and and you have to, you have to understand the human element around it. Yes, you have to be extremely respectful and extremely professional. Um, but you know, there is time to have to see the human element. You know, and yes, you know, the royal family are humans, the same as the rest of us. They are. Um, parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, um, you know, exactly the same dynamics as lots of other families. And yes, you know, there is there is a time that as a protection officer, you must probably spend more time with them than any other member of the royal household. You, you occupy a unique position by being their police officer. Your career uh, has been, as you, you know, part of your direct entry scheme, a lot of your career has been spent at very senior ranks within the Metropolitan Police. And I think most of your work uh, historically has been around safeguarding and leading teams that have arrested and investigated some of the most um, abhorrent individuals in the community that um, exploit uh, young people for their own gratification. Um, you led on Operation Utree, which is probably one of the most recognisable investigations of the past decade with regards to these matters and a certain individual, Jimmy Savile. I'm wondering, for those that don't know who that individual is um, and what Operation Utree was, obviously that's probably one of the most significant uh, events of your investigative career leading that. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, and it goes back to 2011, um, and the death of a TV presenter, very high profile, quirky individual who um, died in his early 80s in 2011 and had what was almost a state funeral up in uh, Leeds in Yorkshire. Um, one of the original celebrities from the BBC 
uh, heavily involved in the music industry in particular, but went on to do a lot of charity work, um, had his own TV programs where he was the brand himself. And everything was about him and the good work that he was doing. Thank you, dear friend. Now then, now then, straight to business. So Lisa wrote to me and she said, Dear Jim, my brother Jeffrey, who is five, likes animal biscuits, especially the elephant ones. Dear Jim, ever since I learned to drive, I've wanted to go on a skid pan. This will prove to my husband that I really am a safe, careful driver. Plug the car door and click the seatbelts. Plug, click, every chip. Good, 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 as happened. Right, now, thank you, thank you, my dear. How about a quick trip up towards the top of the charts? Number four, to be exact, with Chicago. One of our former colleagues who had moved into investigative journalism uh, had picked up on a number of stories about investigations into child sexual abuse by this individual, Saville, um, and ultimately a program was broadcast in 2012, actually almost exactly a decade on from now, on ITV, independent television. Uh, that then led to a very significant joint response from the British Police Service and the NSPCC, the National Society for Protection Cruelty to Children. And it was a joint investigation into what But let's talk about one of the first biggest events, arguably, that you oversaw as a goal commander, which was the G20 summit here in London. The ancient streets of the city of London filled to the sounds of anger. It was predicted and promised by some. As thousands reached the Bank of England at its centre, it erupted. After three or four surges, they managed to move through the street, attack the RBS building, smashing one of the windows, when riot police came in to secure that area. Now they're bringing mounted police in from the rear. They're going to box them in, and it's brewing up here. I don't know what might happen next. Thousands of people have been involved in this first day of action. For many, it was simply a show of solidarity, not violence. The, the challenges around G20, if you can tell us about what G20 was, what it required, and, and some of the, I suppose, more controversial parts of the fallout from it and the death of an individual during one of the protests slash riots which occurred. Yeah, the, the, the G20 was an interesting case study in many respects. It, it came at a time when, if I'm right, Gordon Brown had recently taken on the Prime Ministership from Ian Blair, and we, we remember that kind of frosty relationship the two had. And I think part of it was, was Gordon Brown trying to make a name for himself, you know, within politics and internationally. So he called, he asked for the G20 to come to London, which is fine. Um, and I imagine having made that decision, then his advisors in Cabinet Office Home, you know, Home Office Number 10, start putting the Prime Minister's bidding together. Unfortunately, on this particular job, and it had some resonances with other big jobs that we did, there was little or no liaison with the police. So they just decided when it was going to be and where it was going to be. Um, and, and those two decisions actually gave us huge headaches. First of all, when it was going to be, they hit on the 2nd of April now, Historically in the in the UK, as you know, over, over many years, the 1st of April um, became, you know, a, a April Fool's Day, but it had become a day of protest and a, a kind of a day of ironic protest. So we had Fossil Fuels Day, you know, and, and, and other kind of things on the same theme, but big protest days up until that year. This particular year, 
Um, there was nothing really on the radar. You know, I, I was going in and just speaking to the Intel people, saying, well, what, what do we got coming up for April the 1st? And, well, nothing really, Governor. It's all pretty quiet. We think we're going to get away with it this year. As soon as he announced that the, the G20, so the world's 20 top economic countries, you know, their leaders are coming to the UK, kapow, you know, the, the, the balloon went up and we just got, you know, inundated with stuff on social media about protests. Well, thanks very much, Governor. You could have asked us. Policing at different times in its history around the world has failed the very people amongst its ranks, either through overt or covert acts of racism, misogyny or homophobia. It has at times failed to challenge poor behaviour and culture, which has isolated those who just wanted to be accepted for who they were. These behaviours have led officers such as my next guest, retired Metropolitan Police Constable Gamal Turawa, to hide not literally, but to hide from who he really was, a proud gay black man, who wanted to be him and for others around him to accept him for who he was. I have interviewed during the course of this podcast over 40 guests, but undoubtedly this episode is the most important story I've told so far. If we are ever to improve and to be better, we have to challenge who we are. We have to listen to each other understand the thoughts, feelings and beliefs of others and importantly we have to respect each other. Gamal, commonly known as G, is one of the bravest men I have ever met, whose story is one that you can't help but get emotional over, which leaves you asking yourself what would I have done if I had been there? G is resilient, he is courageous, he is a leader who now enables people to have these courageous conversations around the important topics of equality, race and gender. But importantly, and above all else, he is now proud of who he is. It was an honour for me to recently hear his story on the podcast Protect and Serve, and for that I will be forever grateful. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. You're involved in a foot chase, as you mentioned a bit earlier on the podcast, with a chap that was armed with a firearm, which then gave you the sudden realisation that the, th the thoughts and feelings that you'd had sometime prior in terms of the, the risks to you as an individual, the ramifications of somebody getting hurt in a tussle, really did come to the fore. But on this particular occasion, it was your own safety and realisation that at any one moment, life can be taken away from you um, if somebody that you're pursuing chooses to take that abhorrent decision. So could you talk us through that incident, which kind of was a bit of a catalyst for your kind of drawing a curtain on policing and with the Met? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose I'd say I, I it was just to say I, I was less... I was less... Um, I, it was much less about thinking there were greener pastures elsewhere as a reason to go it was much more i can't keep doing this because something really bad is going to happen was, was was more the sense but this sort of um the incident that we're going to talk about i think certainly sealed the if there'd been any doubt in my mind and i, I don't think there had been as i say the the, the thoughts were all there and the, the evidence at least in my mind was all there and so he's also the recipient of the queen's police medal an award bestowed on those who have demonstrated gallantry and distinguished service 
Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to start, if we can, it's an important time to take a moment and reflect on the life of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who sadly passed away yesterday in Balmoral at the incredible age of 96. She's meant so much to the United Kingdom, the Commonwealth and countries far and wide, uh, and they've been touched by her passing in the last 24 hours. You've received the Queen's Police Medal, an incredible honour, and equally you've been charged with Her Majesty's protection for much of the last seven years. How do you reflect on her passing and the important role she played in your career as our Head of State? Well, like almost everyone else in the United Kingdom and probably around the world, I've been listening to nothing but um, incredible plaudits for one of the world's greatest leaders. Uh, You know, as a statesperson, she really did have no equal. Uh, And in this country, it's incredibly rare um, to find somebody that nobody has a single bad word to say about, ever. You know, in private, in public, both sides of the media, both sides of the House, Republicans who, whether they dislike the monarchy or not, never dislike the Queen. And that is an incredible legacy. And as everyone says, she was a constant in all of our lives. The only monarch most of us have ever known. Uh, And that was quite, um, so it's been quite an emotional moment. There is no doubt about it. You and I discussed this morning, should we go ahead? And both of us came to the conclusion that um, she'd be horrified if she thought people stopped working because she had died. And she did everything to secure a brilliant succession. I never met the Queen personally, despite having been in charge of her protection and her family's protection. But I have met many members of her family. And she did a wonderful thing because I have met King Charles. And I think he is a man of great wisdom, great intellect, huge compassion. I've met many people from the Prince's Trust whose lives he's changed. You know, this is not a cliff edge moment for the United Kingdom. It's a transition that she organised brilliantly. And we will have a great king as well. And I'm incredibly proud to be a crown servant. Uh, And yeah, slightly emotional. I think that's an important point you raised there is that I think people are worrying about the next generation of monarchy and, and what that looks like for our country. And I think a lot of people sitting there with question marks, but I think as you've quite eloquently put it, King Charles III will be an inspirational leader. He will he will no doubt lead in a different style that is to be expected, but equally I think he will do a remarkable job and you know, the heir to the throne uh, in Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, who will become the Prince of Wales equally with some fantastic people amongst the royal family who will take us through a new era in, in, in monarchy for sure. I agree entirely. I've, I've met the Duke of Cambridge as well and he is going to be a fine king himself. I have no doubt about that. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The palace has just issued uh, this statement says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. Well, I think that's a lovely way to start our podcast. I will certainly 
reflect on this one fondly as uh, us having an opportunity to, to remember Her Majesty the Queen and, and, and uh, look forward to, to sharing this episode out in a number of weeks' time. Fairly soon after graduating, within 12 months, you were faced with probably one of the greatest challenges I think any police officer can face, and that is um, dealing with a matter off-duty, I think, in the first instance. Well, you actually may or may not have been off-duty. You'll have to correct me on that one. But um, dealing with the loss of a colleague... Um, talking about 1998 when you were with Peter Forsyth and I think from memory you'll have to recall the story for me but I think you intercepted somebody who was trying to sell drugs and that event turned south pretty quickly. Are you able to talk us through that because it would have been an incredibly difficult situation? From conversations about community policing, mental health support for police officers and advancements in technology to discussions on fostering trust between law enforcement and the public, we've covered it all. Every episode has provided valuable insights that help us better understand the complexities of the policing world we live in. As I celebrate this milestone, I wanted to express my deep gratitude to each guest who has appeared on the show. Your willingness to share your experiences, perspectives and knowledge, opening up and showing the true detail behind some of the decisions you had to make, the investigations you are part on, some of the emotions you experienced has been truly inspiring your dedication to serving your communities is a testament to the importance of the work policing does day in day out 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days of the year when we dial 999 we know the police are going to come and help us to my listeners Your support has been nothing short of amazing. I've received messages, emails, and even voice recordings from listeners all around the world, sharing how the podcast has impacted them and changed their thinking and views on the police as they better understand the challenges that are faced day in, day out. Your engagement and enthusiasm has motivated me to continue bringing you thought-provoking content from the world of policing. As I look back on the past year, it's clear the Protect and Serve podcast has become a platform for meaningful conversations and a source, I hope, of inspiration. But this is just the beginning. I have exciting plans for the future with more thought-provoking discussions, difficult and courageous conversations, inspiring stories, and engaging guests lined up to continue coming on the show and sharing their stories. Once again, though, I want to thank our listeners and our guests for an incredible year. Your support has been the foundations of my success and I can't wait to see where the next year takes me. Keep engaging, keep learning and keep striving to make our communities safer and more connected. As I wrap up this special episode, remember that the heart of this podcast is the dedication to protecting and serving. Let's continue to work together learn from each other and make a positive impact on the world around us from the bottom of my heart thank you and here's to another amazing year ahead that concludes my first birthday of this protect and serve podcast stay safe stay informed and remember we're all in this together until next time speak soon this podcast is brought to you by the public safety foundation the public safety foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. 
This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.